Okay, we're on the air. Thank you. The Roman centurion that we read about in Luke chapter 7, he appears suddenly and without any introduction. The centurion was almost certainly centered at Capernaum. A centurion, of course, looks after a hundred soldiers. And the the uh, town of Capernaum was a very strategic place on the lakeside, the natural place for the Roman forces of the occupying army to be stationed. Jesus also had three disciples in Capernaum, brothers Peter and Andrew, and then Matthew, the tax collector. And quite close to the beginning of his ministry, Jesus selected Capernaum as the headquarters of Galilee, his Galilean headquarters. Great crowds used to come to Jesus at the beginning of his ministry there in Capernaum to receive his teaching, to receive his healing. But as far as we know, there was no place in Capernaum that was large enough to house these crowds, sometimes amounting to thousands. So Jesus would go out into the hills behind, behind, above Capernaum, and he would teach there. So it appears that Jesus was coming back from the hills on one of these teaching events, perhaps with hundreds of people following him, and he met the centurion. At least, he didn't meet the centurion. He met the delegation of Jewish leaders sent to Jesus. So Luke, at this moment, continues the account, chapter 7, verse 1. After he had entered, after he had ended all these sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a slave who was dear to him, who was sick and at the point of death. When he heard of Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his slave. When they came to Jesus, they besought him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he built us our synagogue. We meet three or four centurions in the New Testament. One was a centurion on duty at the crucifixion, and every time the centurions come across in a very, very good light in the New Testament, the centurion at the cross as Jesus died said, surely, this man was the Son of God. Then there was a centurion who rescued Paul from flogging, recorded in Acts chapter 22, when he learned that Paul was a Roman citizen just at the right moment. He terminated what would have been a terrible beating for Paul. And then there was a centurion who was on the boat that traveled with Paul, he was shipwrecked on the island of Malta. The soldiers in turn intended to kill all the prisoners. But the centurion intervened because he wanted Paul's life saved. He forbade the massacre of the prisoners. So it seems that this Roman centurion had outstanding qualities shared by these other centurions. They were men of sterling courage, character, and profound integrity. We have an insight from this by the historian Polybius, 
who describes the qualifications of a centurion. He writes, they must not be so much seekers after danger as men who can command, steady in action and reliable. They must not be over anxious to rush into the fight, but when hard pressed, they must hold their ground, prepared to die at their posts. Such was the centurion that we meet in Luke chapter 7. He certainly ranks with these other remarkable New Testament centurions. But there is one major difference, and that is with the centurion from Capernaum. He receives a commendation from Jesus that none others, in fact, nobody else in the gospel record received. Jesus, at the end, when the centurion has uh, had his servant healed, the record says, Jesus said, I tell you to the crowds, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. So what I want to do this morning is to look at this centurion, see what God is doing in his life, recognize that God was most certainly working in his life and can work similarly in us. Perhaps we can pray before we proceed to the details of the story. Lord God, we thank you that we have this account in Luke 7 of the centurion who came to Jesus. Help us to understand the need of the circumstances, the hopes and the fears in this man's life. Help us to see the transformation that you brought to him. Help us to see the transformation that you can bring to any man or woman who truly turns to Jesus in humility and faith. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to suggest to you that there are several remarkable things about this centurion, and I want to go through them one by one. First of all, this centurion sought Jesus without delay. We don't know what he'd heard about Jesus. We don't know who told him about Jesus, but it says when he heard, he sent to him, to Jesus, the elders of the Jews. The record indicates that the centurion had heard about Jesus. Presumably he'd heard that Jesus healed people. So he realized immediately, perhaps, surely, he could heal my sick and dying servant. For this reason, he sent a delegate of Jewish elders to Jesus to ask him to heal his sick slave. When the centurion heard that Jesus healed sick people, he could have reacted with skepticism. We know there were people who thought that Jesus was in league with the devil. But the centurion had a sincere, strong, and unflinching faith. The centurion had no skepticism. He was hardly response, sincere in his response when he heard about Jesus. He could have reacted with superiority. After all, the Romans had conquered the Jewish people. He could have said, there's no way that I'm going to ask one of these conquered people to come and help with my sick servant. But he didn't. He, without hesitation, asked Jesus to bring this healing to his servant. Some people do respond today to Jesus without delay in sincere faith and prayer. 
At the same time, there are those who say, well, my problem isn't that serious. I don't think I have to pray about it at the moment. Prayer is like breathing. We have to breathe day and night. Prayer is the same thing. We cannot truly live without the breath of prayer. Perhaps you give thanks for your food before you partake of a meal. Why not at that moment just pray for whoever you've seen that day? Pray for whoever you've had a note from on your email. In this way, we can begin to have a life of prayer that isn't regulated at certain set times, but just flows out of the events of this day. Prayer becomes more and more a habit woven into our daily lives. The Canadian hymn writer Joseph Scriven talked about how sometimes we don't bring our needs to Jesus. His wonderful hymn, What a Friend We Have in Jesus, he pens one verse, Oh, what peace we often forfeit, oh, what needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. The centurion sought the help of Jesus without delay. The second remarkable thing about the centurion I want to suggest is that he had compassion for his slave. Under Roman law, a slave was the absolute possession of his master. He was, the slave was regarded as a tool, as a mere thing, not a person. When slaves were sick or too old to work, they were simply discarded and left to die. Here was a slave owner who cared deeply for his servant. Luke tells us that the slave was dear to the centurion. The word dear is a translation of the Greek word entimos. One of the only times that entimos is used in the New Testament outside this instance is when Peter talks about Jesus being entimos in the eyes of the Father, that is, being precious in the eyes of the Father. The remarkable thing is that Luke uses this word, takes this word to describe the slave of the centurion. The centurion used that word of his slave. In the eyes of the centurion, the slave was precious to him. Luke tells us that as Jesus is to the Father, so this slave was to the slave owner. It certainly looks as if the slave owner regarded him much more as a son rather than as a slave. People are precious. They're of infinite value because we're made in the image of God. God has given this spiritual insight to the centurion. The centurion had compassion for his slave. How God wants to fill our hearts with compassion for those around us. I wonder if often you're walking down Young Street and uh, you look at the face of someone who's walking towards you and you, you read anxiety. Perhaps you read fear. Perhaps you read a, a heavy burden that person is carrying. How good it is simply to pray for that person as we're walking by them. We can then be a blessing to those that we meet, never knowing their name, but just praying for them because God puts them on our hearts. 
bring to the Lord the concerns that you have of your own or of other people. As we do this, the Lord gives us a deep compassion for those perhaps whom we will never meet. The centurion had compassion for his slave. A third remarkable thing about the centurion is the respect that he had for the Jewish faith and the Jewish people. The Romans conquered Israel in 63 BC. For over 90 years, the Romans had held the nation in its absolute authority. The policy of Rome was to allow subject peoples to practice their own religion, but many of the Roman authorities who held power in Israel despised the Jewish people. They often hated this conquered race. But this centurion was remarkably different. The delegation of Jewish elders who came to Jesus said of the centurion, he is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation. He has built us a synagogue. The religion of Rome was a form of paganism that believed in many gods. These pagan gods were supposed to have the characteristic human vices. Thus, mere mortals were given permission, license to behave in the same way as their gods. But when the Romans encountered the Jewish people, the Jewish faith with its strict monotheism, its high moral values, its high standards, not a few of them were drawn to the Jewish faith, and they came to believe in the one true creator God. These men and women were known as God-fearers. They didn't obviously obey all the dietary laws and the religious rituals of the Jewish faith, but they did become worshippers of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Such a man, it seems to be, was this centurion. This centurion had gone far beyond mere respect for the Jewish faith. He had built a synagogue for the people, the Jews of Capernaum. He was known as a man who loved the Jewish people. The centurion had so endeared himself to the elders of the synagogue that he had built for them that when he asked them to take this message to Jesus, they had no hesitation in doing so. The centurion's thinking may possibly have been, well, I as a Roman and a Gentile shouldn't speak to a rabbi. So with great grace, he decided that to send Jews to the rabbi was the wisest and the most respectful thing, not to him to go as a Roman and a Gentile. God's word of promise to Abraham was descended, was fulfilled to this man. Well, scripture says, Genesis 12, I will bless those who bless you. The centurion was being blessed as he was blessing the Jewish people. The centurion sought the help of Jesus without delay. He had compassion for his servant. He profoundly respected the Jewish faith and people. And as we think of these three remarkable things about the centurion, we realize that God was working in his life. These were clear signs of God at work in the life of this Roman soldier. It looked as if Luke had written his gospel for non-Jewish people. Many places in Luke, it's quite obvious that 
He was writing not primarily for the Jews, but for the Gentiles. And it appears that Luke had, had selected this incident with the centurion, not just as another example of Jesus' healing work, but as an example of the way that God was accepting a Gentile, a Roman. So that as Luke sent out his gospel to the Gentiles, they could see that God was at work in the life of a Gentile and giving assurance that Jesus had indeed come for the Gentiles as well as for the Jews. It was a foretaste of the promise that through Jesus, God would indeed draw Gentiles to himself. We see two more signs of God's work in the life of this centurion. These things are related specifically to this man's personal response to Jesus. If you're still keeping track, in the fourth place we see that this centurion humbled himself before Jesus. He humbled himself before Jesus. Jesus' response to the delegation of Jewish elders sent by the centurion was going towards the, the centurion's house. Luke tells us simply, and Jesus went with them. At this moment in the record, there's a dramatic change. There's a sudden turning of direction, a surprising twist in the story. Luke continues his narration. When Jesus was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say a word, and my servant will be healed. For I, too, am a man under authority. I have soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes. I say to another, come, and he comes. To another, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard this, he marveled and turned and said to the multitude that followed him, Not even in Israel have I found such faith. It is indeed extraordinary that a Roman centurion should say to a Jewish rabbi, I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. The first word of the prodigal son to his father when he came back was, I am not worthy to be called your son. John the Baptist said of his relationship to Jesus, I am not worthy to lose his sandals. The centurion recognized something about Jesus that made him aware of his own unworthiness in his presence. The centurion humbled himself before Jesus. For a person to humble himself, to humble herself before God is one of the surest signs of God's work in that person's life. James, in his letter, says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he will exalt you. Peter says, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. How vital it is for us that we humble ourselves before our great and all-gracious God. In a few moments in our service, we're going to join together in that most profound and beautiful communion prayer, the prayer of humble access. 
We're going to say we are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under your table, but you are the same Lord whose nature is always to have mercy. As we humble ourselves before God, he lifts us up into the joy and the glory of his presence. So the centurion humbled himself before Jesus, a sure sign of God's drawing him into relationship with himself. And the final thing that we see about this centurion is that he put his faith in Jesus. The centurion not only believed that Jesus could heal his servant, but he believed that Jesus could do that by issuing a single word of command without ever coming to the centurion's house. He says, but say the word and let my servant be healed. The centurion was reflecting on his own experience of authority. The centurion knew that his own authority derived from being under authority. The centurion didn't say, I am a man of authority. He said, I am a man under authority. He knew that his instructions to his subordinates would be obeyed because he in turn obeyed the instructions of his superiors. By implication, the centurion was saying that he recognized that Jesus was under authority. This, of course, was entirely correct and true. Because many times Jesus spoke of the authority of his Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own authority, but only what he sees the Father doing. Not only did the centurion believe that Jesus was able to heal his servant, but he recognized the power and the authority that Jesus had from his Father to do this. No wonder that we read these words. When Jesus heard this, he marveled at him, turned to the crowd and said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. Do you know there are only two places in the New Testament where we read that Jesus marveled? One is here where Jesus marveled at the faith of the centurion. The other place is where Jesus was teaching and ministering in Nazareth. We read, he marveled because of their unbelief. Does Jesus marvel at our faith or does he marvel at our unbelief? So we have seen five indications of God's work in the life of this centurion. He sought Jesus' help without delay. He had compassion on his slave. He had deep respect for the Jewish faith and people. He humbled himself before Jesus and he put his faith in Jesus. Jesus only commented on one aspect of the centurion's life. He commented on his faith. In his faith, his faith in Jesus. Jesus said that even in Israel among the Jews, he had not seen anyone exercise the faith that the centurion had. What does Jesus mean by this exactly? Not even in Israel have I seen such faith. I want to suggest that there are two aspects to the centurion's faith. First of all, faith is intellectual conviction 
is secondly, personal trust. I may give intellectual assent to what the Bible says about Jesus, but that may not be accompanied by personal trust in him in the circumstances of my life. With this centurion, we see that there was both intellectual conviction and also personal trust coming to Jesus with this great issue, trusting that he could heal his sick and dying servant. He called on Jesus to heal his sick slave, confident that Jesus could do so without even coming to his house. How vital it is in our lives to have both intellectual assent, but also to have personal trust in Jesus in the circumstances of our lives. And so in response to the centurion's faith, Jesus healed his sick and dying slave. We don't know the name of this servant. We don't know his age. We don't know his country of birth. We don't know how he became a slave or why. All we know is that Jesus healed this sick and dying slave. This is what Jesus did. Luke concludes his account. Those who had been sent returned to the house. They found the slave well. Jesus had healed this sick and dying slave. And after I had read this remarkable story, I said to myself, I am that sick and dying slave. What do I identify with this slave, this dying servant? The apostle wrote to the Christian in Ephesus, you he made alive who were dead through your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. The apostle Paul continues in Ephesians 2, but God who is rich in mercy out of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead through our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Before the centurion heard of Jesus, there was no hope for the sick and dying slave. What joy there must have been in the centurion's household when the sick and dying slave was healed by Jesus and made alive again. We must never, never, never forget that before we heard of Jesus, there was no hope for us. We were no better than a sick and dying slave. Remember, Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12, remember that at one time you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Without Jesus Christ, we have no hope. We are without God in the world. I wonder if you have ever acknowledged this. I know most of us have, but perhaps there are one or two who have never fully, truly acknowledged this. If you have never acknowledged that you are a sick and dying slave, if you've never asked Jesus to save you, now in this communion service, 
is a wonderful time to do so. Let your coming forward to communion or for a blessing be your coming to Jesus for his forgiveness and newness of life. What joy there was in the centurion's household. What joy there is in the household of God today when we, a bunch of former sick and dying slaves, rejoice in the new life that we have through the Lord Jesus Christ. All this is, of course, only possible through his death on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins, through the new life that he gives to us through his resurrection from the dead, through the gift of his Holy Spirit. This we celebrate as we come to the communion service, seeking to come to the Lord Jesus Christ himself. <laughs>